Welcome to Mother Bodies, the podcast about postnatal health and why it matters. I'm your host, Rosie Taylor. I'm a journalist and I'm on a mission to find out why we so often fail to give mothers the care and support they need after birth. It's fabulous to have you back for this second series or welcome to those of you listening for the first time. Just in case you're new to Mother Bodies, let me tell you what the podcast is all about. Every week, I speak to an expert or well-known mum. Together, we debunk myths and break down taboos around postnatal health and discuss why the system is failing so many women and what we can do to change parents' lives for the better. This is Mother Bodies. So something a little bit different for today. I'm speaking to Paul Morgan Bentley, who is Mother Bodies' first dad guest, um, which is exciting. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you might be thinking, what, why is a dad on a show about postnatal health? But I'm really excited to speak to Paul today because he is the author of a new book, The Equal Parent, How Sharing the Load Helps the Whole Family Thrive. The book was inspired by Paul's experience of becoming a gay surrogate dad and how that opened his eyes to how much women are typically disadvantaged in motherhood. Now, he explains this much better than I can. So we'll kick straight off with our conversation. Actually, it's funny, but as gay parents, gay male parents, I definitely assumed that we would face more issues related to us being an LGBT family or couple. And actually, for the most part, we just get on with our lives and we haven't faced any of that. You know, who knows what people say behind your backs, but certainly to our faces, it's felt like quite a normal experience. We've, you know, it's such a leveler having a newborn baby. And we had friends who had newborn babies at the same time or similar times. And we were all doing the same stuff. We were talking about getting up at night. We were talking about feeding. Yes, we weren't breastfeeding, but also lots of them weren't breastfeeding. So, you know, actually it was, that was less of a difference than we thought it might be. But there was one area where we were constantly kind of shocked, laughing, finding it ridiculous. And that was just the general surprise, lack of expectation, praise that we got because that we were men doing it and not gay men, but just, you know, any men. The vaccination appointments and the kind of praise we'd get from nurses, and it happened every time the nurses would say, and they meant well, but they're saying, you know, oh, it's brilliant to see a dad. We only ever usually see mums. Yeah. Or if you have a parent by themselves, it's usually just a mum. And it was during the pandemic. So often couples couldn't come together. If you're a couple, like you had to be one of you and it would always be the mum. So they were kind of so delighted to see a man um, or even, and it carries on. So, you know, women often talk about how if they work as much or more than their partners, they still get all the calls from nursery mm-hmm. and they get the calls from the health visitors. And we definitely found that when we were getting these particularly the health visitors they'd call and be kind of really surprised it was a dad and say oh we don't usually list dads um wow. and that carries on you know and I, I went to the chemist really recently and a really lovely kind of older woman who was serving meant really well but said oh it's so great to see dads doing this and I just thought this is the bare minimum you could possibly do as a parent <laughs> I'm going to the, <laughs> go to the chemist and get some cowpaw <laughs> get some cowpaw like you know where the but then at the same time we're all at work and there are women and men working equally hard and the same expectations are there for women at work rightly but you have a baby and you realize that there's just not even an an attempt for there to be equality at home and so that sparked the kind of the idea for the book and obviously in the book 
you challenge the idea that like mothers are kind of naturally the primary caregivers for baby and I know that there's sort of various science around the fact that like you know mother's brains change after birth and that they're biologically primed to do things like listen out for the baby in the night and stuff but obviously in your family there wasn't a kind of biological mother as it were but you still listened out for your baby in the night and were able to care for him obviously lo and behold he didn't just cry in a vacuum (laughs) someone got out of bed Um, it's really interesting and perhaps it's controversial for a man to say you know maternal instinct no such thing the, the book is not kind of me just spouting off opinions I really wanted to look into the science of it and we found kind of confusing things were happening because with our friends in heterosexual couples the cliche did tend to be true mm. the mum was waking up first at night there was clearly something there it couldn't just by chance be happening to everyone um with us I took the first half of parental leave and I just remember waking up when Solly cried and being furious at Robin that he was still sleeping and just thinking like what has happened to it why am I responding like apparently women do why do I have this maternal this kind of mysterious maternal instinct and Robin's still snoring yeah. and like perfectly I, there was this one time I really remember where I kind of went to Solly and I had to place his dummy and Robin kind of rolled over and mouthed a little kiss like <laughs> and I was just like I'm gonna kill him <laughs> But what was really interesting was we split parental leave in half. And when he took over, it kind of sounds ridiculous and too neat when I say it, but it is 100% true. When he took over, he started waking up first. Mm. And actually, when I, look, when I looked into the science for the book, that makes total sense. There's been really good kind of scientific studies into this, both through kind of blood tests and taking hormone levels of new parents, men and women, and also scanning brains of new parents. And the first thing to say is that scientists were initially very surprised because they measured oxytocin levels in mothers, new mothers and new fathers. And they found, as expected, that mothers had very high raised levels of oxytocin. And they think that's due to surges in pregnancy and childbirth. But actually, when they looked at the men's brains, the fathers that were very actively involved in caring for the baby very soon had exactly the same levels of oxytocin. And what they seem to show is that actually, yes, women get that are primed biologically to bond with babies. But the idea that men aren't is nonsense. And just by doing it, your body changes, your brain changes. However, there's this team led by a scientist called Ruth Feldman, who kind of works in Israel, but has a joint appointment at Yale University as well. And they have scanned um, new parents' brains. And they found a significant difference in the amygdalae of new mothers and fathers and that's part that responds to panic and anxiety and they think this this answers the question why do mums tend to wake up first their amygdalae are four times the size they found so really significantly bigger than new dads typically and this is it kind of sounds really mysterious your brain changing but this happens when you're like really anxious about something so if you're if you've got an exam the next day or if you're making a presentation and you're lying in bed and you can't sleep because you know deep down that you're the only person you know, it's your 100% your responsibility. If you don't do it, no one's going to do it. Yeah. And mothers are clearly feeling that in a much deeper sense, in a much deeper way than fathers. And then the really, in- sorry to keep going on, no. but the, the really, the, the really interesting research that her team then did more recently is more and more gay dads like me and Robin have become fathers through surrogacy. She, her team stu- uh, scanned new dads through surrogacy's brains, gay dads. 
And they found that the, whoever the primary caregiver was, their brain looked exactly like women's in terms of the size of the amygdala. So not only did they have the same levels of oxytocin, the bonding hormone, but also their levels of kind of anxiety and alertness were just as high as new mothers. And that's not to do with genetics, you know, with gay dads, one of you has to be not genetically related to the baby. Um, I don't think there's any sense it's to do with sexuality. It's kind of really simple. It's to do with the fact that if you're lying next to a mother and all these kind of societal things and biological reasons make you think deep down, she's really the one with the full responsibility, Mm -hmm. even though I'm doing lots, you sleep easier. But if she's not there, if there's no kind of genetic mother, biological mother there, and you're raising a child as two dads, one of you has to get up. Lo and behold, you don't both sleep through it. (laughs) And so that's really interesting, actually. So, you know, it's not necessarily biological. What it is, is actually about taking responsibility. And if you know that the buck stops with you, then you're the one that listens out, regardless of who you are, what your relationship is to the child, what your gender is. It's all to do with being the primary caregiver and ultimately being responsible for that child not crying alone in the night yeah and it would be a really interesting experiment uh heterosexual couples with a dad who really says i just sleep through it i'm just a deep sleeper send that mother away for two weeks yeah (laughs) with a newborn baby give her a holiday and see what happens and i bet he starts waking up yeah because there's no such thing as someone who just sleeps through a baby that needs you if if you know you have to go or no one will go you wake up yeah in the same way, I suppose that like, you know, if you have to get a flight really early in the morning, you don't sleep, do you? Because you're listening out for your alarm the whole night. You're sort of like yeah, on exactly. edge, aren't you? Because you know you've got to get that flight. I'm sure the same blokes manage to get up and go to the airport. Yeah, exactly. If it's if they're worried about a call from their boss, they probably get up. Yeah. And I think this research is should be really reassuring for lots of mothers, hopefully, particularly once you go back to work and want to split parental leave and worry about their children or worry that they should feel guilt if they're not looking after their children all the time the fact is there's no biological reason that men can't do this yeah and your child will not suffer and actually it's probably really good for all of you if you split it a bit and you you can sleep more easily because you have proper faith that your your partner can do this yeah absolutely brilliant and in the terms of sharing the load because the thing that we talk about a lot on this podcast is the kind of maternal mental load and the sort of weight of responsibility that mums typically have to carry I'm sure that a huge amount of that is societal but when it came to you and Robin and there were no kind of preconceived ideas that one should answer all the calls from nursery or do all the medical appointments or be the person that always buys nappies or that sort of thing how did you find sort of splitting the responsibilities did you have to sit down and divvy it up did it all fall quite naturally did one take more responsibility than the other how did it work for you I think as as a same-sex couple we were just really practical about it in the way that perhaps most couples can't be Mm. because there are all these expectations because one of you's been pregnant and given birth you know we both had a newborn baby Solly's our son he's almost three we had him through surrogacy in the UK which is altruistic our friend Rachel carried him she didn't earn any money or anything like that that's illegal in the UK she is a very wonderful person and also through egg donation, um, a separate egg donor as well. And But we had him from birth and we're really practical about our decisions. We wanted to split the year. We'd both built up our careers and made lots of sacrifices. I didn't feel like it was fair for only one of us to make those sacrifices long term. Equally, we didn't 
think it was fair for any one of us to get all those months dedicated to bonding with our child or being responsible for our child. And so we, we basically, it was totally financial. We split the year 50-50 and we worked out our works policies and it made more sense financially for me to go first and for Robin to go second. His work had a better paternity leave mm-hmm. policy. So we actually were off for the first six weeks together. Then Robin went back to work and he took over about seven months and we, in the end, it was literally to the day. We were off the same number of days. We were oh, obsessed well. <laughs> with making it exactly. Um, but we we really found that that year, what we did that year, um, kind of laid the foundations for the responsibilities we really feel deeply. So yes, we can both do everything now. And if one of us is away from work, you know, Solly survives. Yeah. But actually, it's funny. Now, I'm still the one that obsesses more over the fact that we've got a car journey quite late and Solly might fall asleep and then that's going to affect his night sleep. And that's the stuff that kind of gets beneath my skin (laughs) and it's like obsessed with naps and not keeping him asleep at night. And now we've just done potty training recently and he's waking up in the night to go to the loo. And I'm like totally obsessed with like how to like the strategy of it. And I really think that's because I was off for the first six months and that the focus is kind of, well, I became a bit of a nutcase, like Gina Ford style, you know, if we give him that much bottle now, he'll sleep for that long and let's preserve the nights. That's still my obsession. Robin took over and it was weaning. And so he totally had responsibility for weaning. Obviously, I got involved and I loved it. It was fun. But he still does the food shop. Yep. He jokes that if, if it wasn't for him every day, I'd get to like 7 p.m. and be like, oh, there's no food in the fridge. I just... <laughs> That's really his responsibility. And he, uh, you know, Solly doesn't starve when he's not here, but he fundamentally worries about the mental load of that kind of stuff Mm. more still. And actually something I think is really important is that somehow parents do find a way of having primary responsibilities that are distinct from each other, doing everything together in a sense. But, you know, we don't do 50-50 of everything. We definitely have areas of primary responsibility. And I I think sharing parental leave can really help with that. And I I do think the model of dads doing weaning can be a really good one because lots of people will say to me, how can you parent equally if one of you is breastfeeding? And the truth is that during that period, you probably can't, you know, there are things you can do. The dad can burp the baby after you you fed him. And if you are breastfeeding, that does make that really challenging. But babies don't actually have milk for very long. You got on solids from six months and then actually the solids are the foods that last their lifetime. So being really responsible for weaning can set you up as Mm. a dad for long-term responsibility. No, And I think what you say about how you start sets out how you go on is so true. We will get on to talking about shared parental leave in a, in a minute. But I think, you know, if you do have time together all as a family at the beginning, that can be so helpful. Just from my personal experience, because I was very unwell for quite a long time after I had my son, that my other half had to do all the cooking for like months because I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't cook. Um, and he still does. And my son's three now and I'm basically just like, you know, I take on a huge amount of the mental load for a lot of other aspects of child rearing. But yeah, I am totally that person that gets at seven o'clock and I'm like, ah, oh, 
what's in the fridge? Oh, only cheese. And that is a what silver lining. <laughs> yeah. And, and that probably wouldn't be the case had you not been ill. No, and exactly. I say it to Robin, if he's doing, he'll be doing an online food shop some, sometimes and he's like, uh, Paulie, Paulie, uh, do, should we... Um, should we get this? And I'm like, I do not care. This is yours. <laughs> like, I'll worry about other stuff. This is your thing. Um, Absolutely. And I'm so the yeah, one that I has think... to say, you know, we don't have nappies. We don't have this. We don't have whites on. Like, all of that kind of stuff. But I but... think actually sometimes, if it's possible, it's really important not to say those things. And this is one of the things about having independent periods of caring for a child alone that I think is really important. If you split parentally or you do whatever but you before you leave the door every morning you say to your partner or you pack the bag for your partner Mm -hmm. or you say here's a list of things you have to do today or don't forget he has a two-hour nap if he wakes up halfway through try and get back to sleep don't do those things really try and not do those things because you do need as a parent to have that experience of going out by yourself with a baby for the first time and realizing you've forgotten the nappies and your baby's just done Mm -hmm. a poo and you will never do that again after that and yeah. you kind of, you do need to make those mistakes yourself to, to then worry about them in the future and have the mental load. So, I do, and that does really help. It really helps me. It's helped me recently when it comes to work, being able on the days that I'm really busy to get on the tube and literally not think about childcare and just know that, well, Robin's on it today. And yeah. we do do that. And it really, it's really liberating when it comes to professional work. I think that's really good advice, but it it is hard, you know, and as a parent, and especially when you have been a primary caregiver, not to be, you know, I mean, I definitely am still guilty of like packing the bag and giving precise instructions about naps because I'm so terrified of what the consequences of not napping might be. Um, Yeah, it is difficult, isn't it? But you're completely right. You know, I I read something recently that said, you know, mums aren't intrinsically better at bath time. They've just done it more than you. Yes. Exactly. This is what scientists say, because you have all these societal things that add up to tell mums that they're better at these things. And you have a baby, the baby's been inside your body, most, you know, for most people, for most women who have a baby. And then first night at hospital, they send your partner home and he's only there for visiting hours. He or she are only there for visiting hours. And what does that tell you? This is my responsibility. And then, so lo and behold, you do more of the nappy changes. So then you become better at, or you do, you put your baby down to sleep more. So then obviously you're going to be better at it because you've been doing it. So, and I'm not for one minute saying it's easy letting go in those moments and, and just leaving it to your partner. It's been hard enough as two men to do that. But I do think for us, it's been easier because we don't have decades of societal pressures on us to be the caring one. Yeah. And, and we too- don't, I don't feel guilt when I leave and go to work and think I'm a bad mother. I just think we're two dads and you know, I don't feel guilt that I'm at work that day because Robin's got it. And I, I think if I were a woman, I probably would. Because of the societal sort of expectations. Yeah. I'm kind of defying what society has told me I should do. So I feel good for the yeah. stuff I do do. Like, I can imagine for lots of women you'd feel a lot more guilt because you're told that it's the 21st century and you should be part of your career but also if you're not doing almost all the parenting you're a terrible mother yeah and that's the challenge I think trying to escape those kind of cultural guilts that are meaningless and what you said about hospital is so true actually because it starts from day one doesn't it this sort of thing that like in a 24-hour period the dad will be there for two hours of visiting yeah the expectation is set that you will do 90% of the parenting. 
And there's so, there is science. There are experiments into kind of the hormones, the hormonal changes that happen after you have a baby, not just through birth, but also through just being there and having skin to skin contact, whether you're a man or a woman. And those first moments are really important. You know, that the science shows that levels of cortisol, the kind of stress hormone, go down in dads, not necessarily after the birth, but after they start skin to skin contact. It's literally the holding yeah. their baby themselves. And, you know, we talk about absent fathers. There's this brilliant quote that I include in my book from Nell Frizzell in The Panic Years, which is a brilliant book. Um, and she talks about kind of absent fathers and, and we haven't done enough kind of work into understanding why some dads are absent. And her theory is that by shielding dads from the tough things, as well as the easy things, she calls it the beast as well as the beauty of babies, they're much more likely to be flaky and to run away when things get hard. Like you need those moments where your baby won't stop crying. Because once you've got through all those moments, you're not going to leave, you know? And we shield dads from the hard stuff. So they're the fun dad that comes back after work and chucks the kid in the air and they have a great time and they bond. But, you know, we often shield them from the really difficult stuff. And something I wanted to do with my book is it's structured from the first night. So the first chapter is about those first hours in hospital and how terrible it is that men get treated like visitors, not just as a, yeah. not as a men's rights things. It's terrible for, for mothers. And the fact that they're just, the message is there. This baby's no longer in your body, but the baby's entirely your responsibility almost. Yeah. Because you and Robin were able to stay with Solly for the whole of that first yeah, night together. We, so Solly was born up north and it, it was in a kind of lovely host, NHS hospital that wasn't busy at all, which was brilliant. Oh, amazing. And they, we partly went there, even though it was a bit further from Rachel, our friend's um, most local hospital, because we'd heard they had more experience with surrogacy birth. Mm-hmm. And they were just set up. They were brilliant. We, after the birth, Robin and I had a room with Solly and Rachel had another room, totally for you know, private rooms, but we didn't pay for them. And then Rachel could come in whenever she wanted. Actually, she just wanted to sleep for a while. And then she came and joined us. Yeah, and we were there throughout the night. And there are often fears about dads being on postnatal wards. And, and that obviously, when the wards are really old fashioned and all open bayed, of course, some women are going to be alarmed because there, mm. there's some blokes walking around. And that's not ideal. But when new hospitals are built, increasingly in the UK they are being built with many more private rooms or ideally yeah. all private rooms in postnatal um, wards in postnatal wards which is really important for family for the family and actually takes pressure off midwives because you've got partners looking out for them as well and but I did a freedom of information request and it was the majority of hospitals in the UK still treat dads like visitors and in some cases mm. they're only allowed to be there for a maximum of one hour per 24 hours after the birth and COVID I just you know, all these restrictions were brought in in COVID and it's sort of been widely reported that in a lot of places, they're still not fully lifted. And oh, it's terrible. Yeah, it's just so difficult and so pointless. In a lot of places, that, you know, in my local hospital, you're not allowed to bring uh, two parents to paediatric appointments because they don't have the staff to manage extra visitors. And it's just like, well, if you had extra visitors, you wouldn't need as many Stuffed, and they're not <laughs> visitors. Got, yeah, and your carers. You know, if you've got like a partner in with you on the postnatal ward, they can help. Especially if you've had a yeah. C-section or something, and you need someone to help you literally lift the baby every time they cry. And this is all terrible for new mothers because ultimately, people are always going to make the decision that the mother goes if only one can go. And so then, what does it just reinforces yeah. the idea that that you have, as well as being equal at work, you have to be more than equal at home. It's just not fair. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, the book kind of goes through from that first night to night waking all the way kind of through parental leave, childcare, all these different societal issues where society is kind of just not catching up with what we're doing already because lots of men are doing much more childcare than their own dads, um, yeah. but also encouraging more change. So actually it gets closer to equality. And just to go back to those sort of first days of the newborn, because I think the point that I wanted to kind of make with having you on the show is that it's, it is legitimate to have a dad talking about postnatal health because dads are affected postnatally as well. I mean, in terms of how you felt, even if it was just in terms of sleep deprivation, did you feel mentally and physically different in those sort of first few months that you were primary carer for Solly? I think I'm a slightly weird case because I have had mental health difficulties in the past. I've since my early 20s been on and off medication for anxiety and I'm the type of person I think that when I'm very busy and when my mind is really engaged I feel great and then (laughs) I go on holiday and it will be in a beautiful resort and the first night and I'll be sitting down for dinner and the lovely food will arrive and I'll be like I'm having a panic attack because (laughs) like the adrenaline has nowhere to go Um, But I actually found that having a newborn baby was amazing for my mental health, weirdly, oh, brilliant. because because there's so many things to do all the time mm. and you feel needed. But, you you know, oh, I need to make another bottle. Oh, I need to wash a bottle. I'm holding him now. I've, there's lots of little tasks. And so I got really into that and actually found it kind of really worked for my personality, having a newborn baby. But loads of men do massively struggle and maybe men who haven't had mental health difficulties before and suddenly they have this really alarming change and can't cope and everything feels really frightening and for my book I spoke to a guy called Elliot Ray and he speaks really powerfully about this and he his wife had a really traumatic birth with their daughter and he they both suffered afterwards and she got help very quickly because she was it was being looked out for which is great because of you know obviously there's huge amounts of work that needs to be done for postnatal depression in women and that often gets missed as well but no one even asked him if he was all right but actually he suffered massively he had ptsd it was only diagnosed about a year later and i think people are often concerned about this idea that if midwives or health visitors are also looking out for dads then they're not looking out for the mum and the baby and that somehow it would take away from the care of the mum and the baby but actually I can't see how it's helpful to anyone or any mother if their partner is really struggling you know absolutely surely actually the best thing for everyone in that family is that everyone is getting the treatment and the help they need and actually it doesn't take very long to just ask someone if they're doing all right you know and or signposting some kind of number they can call if in the future they're struggling and there are huge issues with mental health and men generally in society and this is a really an area where it can get missed and it, people yeah. don't even really you look into the stats to do with um postnatal depression in men and there's some like madly wild range <laughs> it, it's like somewhere between two percent and 28 percent of men yeah. <laughs> it's like well clearly this has not been studied very much yeah yeah um and it's interesting actually what you said then about the health visitors are looking out for mum and baby because again it reinforces that idea that it's only the mum and the baby that are kind of affected and that the dad isn't even included in that family unit and you know it works both ways doesn't it if you need to acknowledge the dad or the non-birthing partner as 
part of the family and integral to the care of the mum and the baby to help them but also to help the mum because it all helps the mum it doesn't take away people say the things about the same thing about uh, hospital appointments before the birth and well we need to focus on mum and baby and it's like well if you invite the dad or the partner whoever they are you're not taking away from the mum and baby actually you're going to help them yeah because yeah if they feel included and they have advice about what to do and you know if something goes wrong or they set up the expectation that they they should have proper responsibility and it's their baby as well that should be good for the mum I think there is concern domestic violence goes up after having a baby and there is rightly lots of concern in kind of perinatal services that of the need to look out for abusive men and to get mum and baby on their own so that they can kind of ask questions about that and that's all obviously completely legitimate and there should be no taking away from that but the fact remains that is a very small number of cases you know relative to 100 percent, it's you know maybe a few percent yeah which is but actually lots of people that I spoke to for the book about this said the balance is just not right and that actually typically health visitors do kind of view dads with suspicion as potential Mm -hmm. threats even though it's a tiny minority of cases but actually by I still think that you know if you engage with the dad you pr- you'd also find out quicker if it's a really horrible dad and you'd yeah. want to know that yeah or at an appointment but- with the mum uh before birth if she's coming in for one of her kind of quick midwife appointments you could say to her right in the future you have the option after the baby of us kind of including a partner is there a partner you want to name that we should also be signposting for kind of help and things like that yeah and then in the vast majority of cases it'll be a chance to say oh yeah great I've got yeah my partner this is the name and yeah if they could be sent this as well that'd be brilliant yeah no that makes perfect sense I wanted to go back to talking about parental leave because Mm. obviously you took six months Robin took six months fantastic but there's an anecdote in your book that sort of in a way I was shocked but in another way I was not at all surprised (laughs) that you mentioned a colleague sort of suggesting that even though you were taking six months off to be the primary carer for your baby you might still you know come into the office occasionally and do some work I got that quite a lot that kind of are you going to be doing a bit what 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 do you do when the baby naps are you like working on stuff (laughs) and it's really interesting because I think there can be a perception among certain men at work that parental leave is a holiday that you're off you're doing you're going for coffee with your mates and you're having a nice little time maybe partly because their experience of childcare is coming home from work and having a really nice hour reading to their kids before bedtime and that it's all really easy and both Robin and I and I'm sure you probably agree absolutely at the end of it felt that it was much harder than work and we still feel like that now But I think, you know, the fact that there's this attitude that like, even though, you know, you've always been very open about your relationship and the fact that, you know, Sully was being born by a surrogacy. But so even though people knew that you were going to be the primary caregiver to him during that six month period, there's such an expectation that as a dad, you don't do everything, that they still had this sort of perception that you wouldn't be doing everything, even though they knew on a sort of practical level that there isn't a mum as well I don't maybe somewhere in their minds they thought maybe I'd have hired a a lady to do all the lady stuff you know like (laughs) that I wouldn't actually be doing or maybe they just underestimate how hard it is because they've never done it themselves and yeah I absolutely wasn't able to do work in those first few months like obviously it's completely all consuming you're barely sleeping yeah and it, it made both of us feel really strongly as well that whoever was at work should not have the nights preserved 
and I, this mm-hmm. can be a bit of a controversial point for some dads but I do get quite angry when I hear about dads sleeping in the spare room I just think why do you need to be more rested for a day of boring accountancy work then you need to be to look after a newborn baby that's really bloody hard and exhausting and much more important like yeah get back in the room like what are you talking <laughs> about burp the baby after the baby's been fed if you if you're if she's breastfeeding like get involved you should you're not allowed in the spare room yeah although <laughs> I mean great I love that but um I think the the flip side to that is also that we've we got to a point where we realized that actually you don't both have to suffer it's probably mm. a bit of an over dramatic word but you know you don't both have to do the hard stuff all the time and actually sometimes if you take it in turns to do the hard stuff and the other one rests yeah that's true. then you've both got a little bit more in the tank and it's a bit easy you know my son just has never been a sleeper so you know he was awake all night and I used to do midnight till 5 a.m and I could do midnight till 5 a.m because I knew that my husband would come in at five and take him and I could sleep for a couple of hours and you can right. just knowing that there's an end sometimes helps if there's a quality to the time spent in the spare room that's not a problem yeah that's fine if you're both getting time we definitely did that particularly because of bottle feeding that's how we structured it we could just split the night feeds yeah and the other one got unbroken sleep for hopefully five or six hours like mm. quite quickly which was hugely helpful but yeah no I mean the ones where there's only one parent who's ever in that spare room getting a good night's sleep yes and it's not the mother no not cool so now that you know Solly's older he's coming out to three you've been parents for a few years now sort of looking back on your time what kind of gender-based stereotypes have you encountered or difficulties have you encountered being two dads that you find like the most frustrating I think it's really easy before you have kids to convince yourself that the world has changed in these ways and it's so much more open when it comes to people varying from what's expected of, of different genders and you know of course girls can play football and look at the women's world cup too you know all that kind of stuff and then you have a baby and it is like you're transported in time to some weird 1950s universe where firstly the stereotypes around babies and you know boys wear blue and girls wear pink and all that stuff that everyone knows about and the toys and all the cliches you hear from like but boys aren't good at potty training or what boys aren't that interested in reading they just like playing football you know that kind of stuff but then also massively as parents and the one of the biggest things for us actually was that you get lots of praise as a dad for doing really basics and you know I mentioned earlier the pharmacist but there's this phrase that we all hear all the time which is oh he's such a hands-on dad Mm. you know imagine any mother ever being called a hands-on mother yes and we pretend to live in a world where there's equality of the sexes but as long as that is still ridiculous um, as long as that's still praise for a dad but ridiculous when applied to a mum there is no equality and I think lots of dads are familiar with that kind of praise being called Mm. a super dad because you're doing really basic stuff and I know you've talked about baby changing facilities Mm. And how they're still often not in male toilets. Have you made a lot of visits to the ladies over the past few years? Yes, but it's it's really it's it's an interesting one because there is some um, progress. So we have found that the bigger kind of department stores, if you go to like John Lewis, M and S, they increasingly have or, or big shopping centres, they increasingly have kind of parent areas, mm. which is great. And you know, you just go there to change your babies, and that means dads are going to do it as well as mums. Yeah. Um, often it is the kind of pubs things like that. I've been in so many ladies at pubs um, and it's really it's kind of 
it's really awkward because you know if your baby's done a poo you can't take him to the men's like where are you going to change him yeah not on the floor of a men's toilet in a pub no yeah exactly or you have to like you know stand them up but oh it's just a nightmare I can't count the number of times that I that in kind of pubs or restaurants that I went in and asked uh, do you have somewhere to change the baby and said oh it's in the women's it's definitely moving in the right direction with the kind of bigger stores but um, typically in smaller places it's still always in the women's yeah and again just reinforces that idea that it's up to you oh yeah of course well because you know, then women are just always going to do it. It's yeah. it's obviously an old fashioned thing, but we don't live in a society anymore where women stay at home and men are the breadwinners all the time. That wasn't fair at the time, but in a sense, there was a more equal division of labour, even if yeah. it wasn't right and needed to change. And and the problem now, I feel anyway, that there has we've only kind of done half the revolution. We've done the works, or we're we're trying to do the work stuff, and there's still some way to go. But figures always come out about gender pay gap. And it's not that surprising that it massively increases after you have a kid. Because you are transported in time to a much more old-fashioned existence after you have a kid when it comes to gender stereotypes. Absolutely. And you may have already answered this question, but I'll ask you the question that I ask everyone that comes on. If there was one thing you could change about the world we live in, which would help new parents, what would that be? One thing. I think that this is quite a boring answer, actually. But when it comes to public spending and government priorities, there's this real reluctance, whether it's parental leave or childcare, to invest money. Yeah, It's seen as kind of spending money on nothing, but actually it's the next generation. And when you look into the figures, it's kind of in other places in Canada where the government has invested heavily in childcare, they found that you get more than your return, economically even, because mums go back to work. Yeah, and absolutely. so actually it's it's massively worth supporting kids and as a result they have better childcare facilities and then on parental leave when you look into the figures it's statutory parental leave is half of minimum wage and that says everything about how the government values looking after kids it's worth mm. hot, you know slave labor and ev- all the policies just encourage or just rely on this kind of idea that a mum will be at home while a dad's at work. And yeah. so I think if there's anything, it'd just be a massive mental shift when it comes to kind of public policy and government and just realising that there's nothing better for you to invest money in than the next generation of people. Paul's book, The Equal Parent, is out now and I've put a link in the show notes to where you can buy it. If you'd like to hear more from Paul, you can also follow him on Twitter. He's at P Morgan Bentley, and you'll find him tweeting about everything from equal parenting to his work as head of investigations at the Times newspaper. Thank you for listening to Mother Bodies and for spreading the word that mum's health does matter. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in this episode, please, please don't suffer in silence. I've put some links in the show notes for organisations that offer support. Please do remember that nothing on this podcast should be taken as a substitute for proper medical advice. If you have any concerns about your physical or mental health, please contact a healthcare professional like your GP, midwife, health visitor, women's health physiotherapist or your local counselling service. Hit subscribe or follow now to get Mother Bodies every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter at Mother Bodies. Bodies.